Who is wise? The one who learns from others. Join me on a journey where I speak to Jewish women from all backgrounds, each sharing their own stories, struggles, and successes. Join a community where you connect to something bigger than yourself. I'm your host, Karen Corin, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 5 of Soul Sessions with KK. I'm your host, Karen Corin, and my next guest is someone who embodies strength, creativity, and the will to keep going. Born and raised in Mexico, she has now become an integral part of the Persian Jewish community in Great Neck. Her zest for life is something we could all learn from. Her story is moving and it's powerful. Get ready for another session that will stir the soul. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Anel Hakimian. Welcome to Soul Sessions. It means a lot to me that you said yes to be my guest on the show, to discuss your story, to share your story with others who are listening right now. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us where you're originally from and what your background is. Hi, thank you for having me. I, it's an honor for me to be here. Um, I was born in Mexico City in an Ashkenazi background family. My family came from Poland and Russia and Lithuania. Uh, they came into Mexico in the 1920s um, between the two wars. Why Mexico? Because they wanted to go to New York and the borders were closed. And the ah. first port next to the U.S. It was Veracruz in Mexico. So they went there and they said, you know, we will go up eventually to the north. And they started to have families, homes, businesses, schools, and they just stay there. And a lot of other people moved to Mexico City. Around like 40 to 50,000 Jews. In, in Mexico, Mexico City. City? Yep. Wow. A comprise of Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardi Jews? There are Sephardim from um, Syria, Lebanon, and Turkey, and Ashkenazim. So oh. now it's very mixed, but before it used to be very separated. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. What do you love most about Spanish culture? And the why? warmth. The, the warmth of people, they, yeah. you know, they see you, they hug you, they kiss you. You're always welcome. There's always an extra plate on the table. There's always dancing, music. It's mm-hmm. very warm and, and, you know, caring for each other. Yeah, I see that. The food, obviously. Oh, my gosh. So I actually, I, when I was working at Asia Torah, I was hosting a trip for girls coming from Mexico. And for me, it wasn't so much of a culture shock because... I feel like, in a way, Persians, the Persian community is a little bit like that, where they're very warm and welcoming, and they'll bring you into their home, and there's always food and dancing, but I loved their passion and their zest for life, and I was really, it was very, um, what's the word? I'm always losing my words. Um, Catchy. It was a very catchy vibe, and I always wanted to be around them, and I felt like every time I was around them, I wanted to just, like, live it up and yeah. live life. We're loud. We're loud. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, it's, so you said there's a strong Jewish community in yeah. Mexico City. Um, how did you get your Jewish values there? What, what do you, which, which Jewish values do you think are put on top of a pedestal, like, in Mexico City? In general, as a community, well... We all try to stay together as much as we can as Jews, like in most places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is important for everyone to be as, you know, you know, close to each other. So I don't know. I think it's, it's a collectivity of, of everything. We all, all try to be good to each other, to be helpful to each other, honest, you know, everything. We, we, 
we might not be as religious as Ashkenazis. It might not be as religious as the other communities they are, but very, very close and very mm-hmm. humble to each other. And we keep the same values as yeah. any Jew. It's a tra- it was like a traditional community yeah. where you were from. Yeah. And would you guys go to like a Beit Knesset or a synagogue? Yes, over yeah, there? I mean, I have to say that I'm more religious now than I, than I used to be or that I grew up Interesting. Um, my community particularly was not super orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will go to, to the Kenisa, to the synagogue every high, the high holidays, um, but we'll wear pants and, you know, it wasn't as right. strict as it is in some other places or here. So here for me, oh, that was a little hard. For, oh, you can't go to pants to shul. You have to wear a skirt. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, why would you wear pants to go to shul? You have right. to wear a skirt. You know, like, <laughs> and then you, you change in that matter. Mm-hmm. I wasn't kosher before mm-hmm. uh, because we don't feel the need or my community at least don't doesn't feel the need to be kosher to stick together mm. because we go to the same schools we go to the same did GCC. you go to a jewish school i went to a jewish school but oh. it's not a religious like they wouldn't teach us how to daven or it was more like a charter school probably no, it's, no. It's, a, it's a completely private school jewish they would teach us every holiday and we'll hebrew I, language probably hebrew and yiddish also because oh. uh, we're it was an ashkenazi school so they teach us yiddish and um Hebrew, English, and Spanish, but it was not a religious school. They mm-hmm. wouldn't teach us religion per right. se. More tradition. We'll learn the Torah, culture, cultural, like you know, all all that, but not in a religious way. So yeah. we were always very stuck to each other. We never had the need of being ultra super uh, religious Strict to with... keep because we were together anyway. We mm-hmm. married to each other. We we're always together. Like we didn't have that need. So if you go there still today, there's a lot of people that is not kosher, but they still. They stick together. Is it hard to keep kosher there? Not anymore, no. Not anymore. Like, I was just there actually a couple of weeks ago for my nephew's bar mitzvah. Oh, wow. And everywhere you go, you see kosher, 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 kosher. I mean, at least where the Jews live. But right, it's right. like, every, you can find any kind of food. But it used to not every, be like that no. when you were growing my up. My family still is not. Like, when oh, I go there, wow. like, I, like, they do it for me, but they, they're, not, they're not kosher at all. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So, tell us how you came to New York. Why did you leave Mexico City? What happened? Well, most, well, I was in my mid-20s, and it was being hard to find a spouse. Mm-hmm. And I kind of always had that little bug on me that I wanted to Did you out. go to school there? In uh, I mean, college? I went in... to college there. I went to architectural school. Architectural school. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, interior design. And I was going to go to Israel at some point, and then I came back to Mexico. I decided not to. Then I saw this opportunity for um, an internship uh, in, an arch- in, a, in an architecture firm from a family friend. So I came for a summer. To in, New York. To New York in 2000. Mm-hmm. And I, I loved it, obviously, what is not to like. And then I went back to Mexico and then they offered me a paid job a few months later. So I came back in 2001 mm-hmm. and I stayed for a full year and I was working with this um, architect uh, in the, in Riverdale in the Bronx. And, and you were living in New York City? In Manhattan, yeah. Was, you know, an apartment? I had an apartment and then I had another job. I was a, a waitress in a cafe at night. Oh, wow. So that was like, uh, you know, I learned a lot and I loved it and it was just really a fun Did thing you know English do. when you moved? I Yeah, not, not probably as good, but yeah, yeah, my English was decent. Right. Very nice. Um, so then I applied for a working visa, and being Mexican, it's very hard to get. So mm-hmm. they denied it to me, and I had oh, to, God. I had to go back to Mexico. This was um, two thousand and three, 
and I was still here trying to find, you know, find love, make a family, to make something about yourself. And uh, I started going to these dating apps, J-Date, mm-hmm. all these Jewish apps. Mm-hmm. And this guy texted me and started like, we would start a conversation. What year was this? 2003? 2003. Beginning of 2003. But you came to New York what year? I thought 2001. You said... Oh, 2001. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, since my visa was getting, you know, they didn't apply, I didn't accept my visa, I had to go back. So I told this guy, you know what, I'm so sorry, you know, it's not worth it, I'm going back, uh, I, we haven't met, we're just texting. It was not texting, it was AOL chat, mm-hmm. you know, back in Those the day. Those the days. And emailing and all these things. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went back, uh, but this guy didn't give, he didn't give up. He wow. continued um, emailing me and uh, AOL chatting and... Mm-hmm. This guy was from the Mashadi Persian community in, in, in Great Neck. In Great Neck. Um, so then he came to Mexico a few weeks later because he wanted to meet me. Oh, wow. So he came a few weeks later. So you were later. talking online yeah, and texting. Yeah, we, we didn't meet. We you didn't, didn't meet, meet yet. No. And you had meet. this connection just for three, three months you were talking? Not even. A few weeks. It was maybe wow. six, seven weeks. Oh, uh-huh. let me think. It was... Maybe a couple months. Mm-hmm. By the time he came, actually came to Mexico City, it was a couple months, maybe. A couple months after. Yeah. He came, he came down to a, after a couple months of just talking. And it was very common for me to bring friends from all over the world to my house. So it was not a surprise for any of my family members that I will bring somebody to have dinner with us. And my mom will, you know, joke with me. They'll say, you know, this is not a kibbutz. You have to stop bringing people. Uh, you know, this is not the UN. Stop bringing I'll bring friends from all over. Wow. So I brought this guy and then didn't, I didn't say what was the purpose of his visit. I he didn't just say, came. I just, you know, it's a friend and uh-huh. because he wanted to meet my family. Wow. So, um, then we were back and forth after he came. Uh, it was a su- successful trip, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, he, we were meeting back. We were going back and forward. And he would travel a lot for business. So we will meet. And then I came to uh, New York back in August. And I met his family, which... It this was, was for like a year. So 2000... No, this is still the same. 2003. Uh, this is still 2003. Wow. So, and then back in November of 2003... I moved back to New York to see if this was going to work out with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily it did work out. And we got engaged in February of 2004. And we mm-hmm. got married in August of 2004. Wow. Wow. So that's how you met your husband at the time. Wow. So that's what brought you to the Persian Jewish community in Great Neck. Right. Because you met your husband. His name is Jake. And so tell us, okay, so you moved to Great Neck, and when did you have your first son? So Julian was Julian. born in November of mm-hmm. 2006. Mm-hmm. So he's Love bar mitzvah this year. Mazel Thank you. I know. I'm very proud of Bar-Kashan. him. Yes. So becoming a beautiful, amazing big boy. Yeah. And uh, can't then, believe it. I was his teacher for years. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, God bless him. Little, yeah, so now he's proud. Like, taller than us. I know. And <laughs> so handsome and bright kid. Thank God. He's Going amazing. to high school next year. So. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. Time flies. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that was in 2006. Mm-hmm. And after him came 
Eyal. Eyal, sweetie pie. Sweetie pie Eyal. He was born in, t- in June of 2009. Mm-hmm. And then my beautiful and gorgeous daughter, Alexandra. Yes, I love that her. She was born in May of 2012. 2012. So thank God you have three beautiful kids who you're getting so much nachat from. I want you to tell the audience what happened with your son Eyal. He so, was... um, in um, October 10th of 2011, it was Columbus Day, it was on Monday, um, I was eight weeks pregnant with Alex, and I had two of my older son Julian's playdates at my house, coming to my house that, that morning. So this was after September 11th? This was... Yeah, yeah. September 11th was in that year too, that right? That was 2001. That was... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm confusing my day. <laughs> So, um, Eyal has been having for the past couple of weeks, maybe 10 days, uh, he'll wake up and randomly he have like uh, bruises in his legs, uh, mm-hmm. tiny little red dots in his nose and his knees. And I used to work at that point. So the babysitter, very concerned, said, listen, he has this bruise, but I want you to know that I didn't do anything to this child. I love him. I would never touch him. So he was, she was concerned that I would think that because randomly he was getting all these bruises, Mm-hmm. she was doing something to the child. Um, so um, obviously I believed her. She was working for me for years. She loved my, my children. And he, yeah, who's, you know, he's color, he's this color. He was a little green, purplish. Like he was just not himself falling asleep. He had just started the toddler program mm-hmm. at Temple Israel. And the teacher would tell me, you know, he fell asleep. He's not, him, he's not playing. And he was just not himself. Very, mm-hmm. very strange. So I thought, you know what, he might be just anemic, maybe he needs to eat a little more iron. Mm-hmm. Um, so I made an appointment with the doctor just to make sure that everything is okay. And I took him to the doctor on October, October 10th of 2011. And um, I took him to the pediatrician, which is Daniel Benalibi, a very good family friend, mm-hmm. grew up with my husband, best friend. God bless him. He's my children's pediatrician as He's well. He's the best doctor ever. So I took him and I said, you know, he's just not himself. Like, he's, I don't know, these bruises, this, that. He started asking me all these uh, questions. And for the questions that he was asking me, mm-hmm. I knew where he was going to. He started oh, wow. asking me, has he fainted? Is he bleeding from his nose? Does he have a fever? All this, it was a no, but I still knew why he was why, asking how did these you, questions. Why? Why did you know? I that? don't know. I just knew that that was your intuition. It was I just... um, I just knew that the symptom, what the symptoms for what he was looking for were, mm-hmm. but I didn't think any of it at that before that point. So when he asked me all these questions, I'm like, this is not okay because I know what these questions mean. And then he said, you know what? Let me just take a little bit of his blood. I can't make a full CBC, but let me just see what what can I find in his blood. So he just took a tiny little drop from his finger, and so I was sitting in the chair, and the yeah, was falling asleep on me. But he really had no control of his body; he's just like falling off the, my arms, basically. And then when he came, he had one of these, you know, like round swivel uh, benches or whatever seats that he the doctors have, and he sits, and I see he's pale, oh completely God. white, and I'm like, Danny, what's wrong? And said, listen, I don't know what, what's wrong, but I can tell you that his blood counts are very off. If I send this to a lab, it's going to take a few days to come back. 
and I don't want I don't want you to wait. I want you to go to the emergency room right now. Oh my god. So when he said that, I started shaking and I'm holding my kid and I'm shaking like this and he said um, he used to work for Winthrop University Hospital mm-hmm. back then. And he usually will send me there for everything. Right. So when he said, I want you to go to Cohen Children's Medical Center, and he didn't say Winthrop, I knew something in my heart that it was something was really, really wrong. So I'm like, um, okay, I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you're confused. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what to think. Is this really bad? You know? what i'm pregnant nobody knew oh, i was pregnant God. i was eight weeks pregnant we, we had just told my family and my in-laws two days before in shabbat launch that i was expecting again everyone was so happy my tiny little five-year-old was running around the doctor's office waiting for his friends to come and i'm like what am i supposed they to came do? with you to the doctor's office no they were coming after oh. and i have to cancel and like you know i'm like oh my oh god my they're god. gonna think i don't want them to come whatever so he goes okay so so where's jake and luckily he was in town that week, that day because it was Columbus Day because he usually traveled all the time. So I'm like, I don't know, he should be um, on the train going to the city. He's like, no, no, call him, ask him to come back and meet you at the hospital. Unbelievable. So when your doctor that is your best friend tells mm-hmm. you that, you know something really is wrong. Mm-hmm. So I'm shaking, I'm like this, and I'm like, I, I, I can't call him, can you please call him? So he moves his chair, he grabs the phone from the wall, he calls mm-hmm. him, Jake, where are you? Uh, on the train? Yes, but where? Um, Broadway? Get off, come back, and then he's going to meet you at the hospital. Oh my God. I'm like, okay. So I go drop off my older son at my brother-in-law's house, and I head to Cohen Children's, and I waited for a couple hours, then Jake came. And I waited for another extra couple hours and then another, oh, you know, it came out to like nine, eight hours of waiting, yeah, of which I already kind of knew what was going to happen in my heart. I knew what the answer was going to be. And then uh, when you see seven, eight people coming into your room to talk to you and they tell you, sit down, you know, they're not going to tell you everything is fine. Mm-hmm. You can go home. So the news that were you already starting to like cry before no, they came in? No, actually no. You didn't experience any of the emotions yet. I was no, I they kept telling me sit down, sit down. I said I don't want to sit, I wanna stand. I said, no, sit down. I don't wanna sit, I wanna stand until my husband pulled me down to the chair, then you sit down. And yeah, I was sleeping on the bed and they told us that it came positive to uh, leukemia, A L L acute lymphoblastic leukemia which is mm-hmm. very common is the most common type of leukemia in children between 2 and 10 years old mm-hmm. and luckily thankfully thank god Baruch Hashem is the most curable type of thank leukemia god. so from that point and on I spent they they said they said he this kid needs to um, start treatment right now he needs to go upstairs and get chemo right now I don't know what you want to do tomorrow. You want to go to a different hospital. You want me to transfer you to any other state, whatever you want. I can do that tomorrow. Right now, this kid needs to start chemotherapy tonight. So he started chemotherapy that night and we stayed in the hospital for a full month without, he wouldn't leave the room for the next month. And uh, my and life how changed. did you do all the arrangements and... Just help from family and well, friends? Well, from the hospital, I called my parents in Mexico, and my dad took the red eye. He was 
by my house the next morning and then he stayed for a week then he left my mom came Mm -hmm. no no my mom my sisters they were taking turns then my mom came and stayed for a few months my in-laws were tremendous help they right away everybody started pitching in or my sister-in-laws everyone the community came together friends family schools teachers everything there was just an outpour of support and love and yeah unbelievable and for the next three and a half years he was in treatment three and a half years three and a half years of treatment and now he's a thriving 10 year old boy thank hashem thank god thank god so when this was all happening like what was going through your head when your child was going through this enormous pain and how did you like keep yourself together if you did keep yourself together i did i I think i still have um I was just not thinking, first of all, I'm not thinking of myself. Um, I was pregnant at the time. Mm. So my, my main focus was on Eyal being in a healthy environment, emotionally mm-hmm. healthy, and for my baby to stick because I had had two previous um, miscarriages before oh. that. And uh, I was really scared that every because of all the stress, stress and anxiety, anxiety, not sleeping, sleeping in the chair for weeks and weeks at a time. And I was afraid that obviously I was going to have another miscarriage. And my mother-in-law kept telling me, this is a girl. This is a girl because girls are stronger. And you'll see, this is a girl. This is a girl. And she's a wise woman. It's a girl. It's a very strong willing girl. Oh, she is. Oh, yes. That she's going to stick. Um, so my, I really didn't think about anything else but making his awful time as healthy as possible like Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever cried in front of him I wouldn't let people come and cry and make it a sad thing um if I couldn't help myself I'll leave the room Mm -hmm. if people start crying I'll ask them to leave the room Mm -hmm. um it was a point that I didn't even allow people to come over and visit because it was Everyone not healthy was just, for him because yeah. I'm like listen this is not helping you standing there and crying is not helping mm, it's only making it worse it's helping, making it worse for him for me for you so I just try to always be in the best um, and did you also get support from High Lifeline and other well, organizations High Lifeline came they're amazing obviously yes. <laughs> They came to me the first maybe two days that I was in the hospital and I ignored them obviously because yeah. I was just going through so much and then I initial grief. Yeah, and, and I I also you know saw this uh, religious guy coming and I'm like, Oh now he's gonna start to convert me and he's gonna start mm-hmm. to push me into do things I don't wanna do and he's gonna say that maybe I should say a prayer. Exactly. Then, yeah. And not that I don't believe in it, mm-hmm. but not at that time. Exactly. At that time you're questioning of why is Hashem sending me this? Why, you know, like, I'm not gonna... You're angry. Yeah, I was angry. I was, you know, in disbelief. I was trying to put my thoughts together. So this guy, Andy Lauber, came and he gave me a card. And as soon as he left the door, I tossed the, the card in the, in the garbage, literally. And the next day he came back. And the next day he came back. And he never gave up on me. Wow. And um, it was actually right before Sukkot of that year. So we were there for maybe a couple of days and then um, they called me from, uh, you know, the front desk where the nurses are and said, yeah, they, there's a couple boxes for you. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't order anything. Say, so, yeah, this from food or I'm like, I didn't order anything. I'm like, it's like great neglect. I'm like, I'm not paying for that. Like, this is not mine. 
no, no. And I see the sign of High Lifeline. So they started sending us food for the Hagim because we're going to wow. be stuck for, for, the, for the Hagim and then Shabbat and the whole thing. Throughout every day, they'll call me, you need food. Can we send somebody to play with the Yal so you can have a break? I mean, they, and since then until today, they, they still like, you know, they took him to, to the camp for five years. Yeah. Um, camp Simcha, right? Camp Simcha, they took a Yal for five years. And every time he'll come back, he would really will suffer for being home. He will cry and cry. Say, I want to go back to Camp Simcha. I don't want to be here. Send me back. Send me back. So they have been just. I can talk for hours. I can talk yeah. for hours and hours about them. They're they're just really have been a huge impact in my life, and I can tell that in my boys' lives too. Yeah. They they learn so much from these counselors and the other kids and their situations and their lives. That is just humbling. Yeah. It's really humbling. A hundred percent. And when you were having all your focus on Eyal, because he was obviously going through this turmoil, how did you balance that with Julian, your firstborn son? How did you, you know, be there for him if you were able to be there for him? And then when you had Alex, your daughter, in when did you have her? May? May. How did you balance it all with well, were you I, able to? I mean, I probably not. No, probably not. Um, I definitely did my best. I still do. Um, Julian, thankfully, we had the support of a lot of people. So yeah. when Julian was in school, I was in the hospital. Then I'll come back, be with him, or or Jake and I will take turns. We'll spend each because the first the first six months of a yes treatment was uh, very intense. Uh, he was um, high risk, and he was very intense. The first six months, after the first month, the 30, first 30 days he was in the hospital, he didn't leave. After those 30 days, the next six months, which was until May, from um, December to May, the end of May, it was going to the hospital two, three times a week. Sometimes we have to stay there for a couple nights. And this is all while you were pregnant? Yes. It is all while I'm pregnant. Sometimes I couldn't even hold him because of the type of chemo that he was getting. Yeah. Um, because so one of them was kind of like radioactive, mm-hmm. so I couldn't even hold him. And if I was holding him, I had to be covered head oh to toe God. with all these things just in case he'll pee on me or he'll throw up on me or he, I couldn't touch any of that, those substances. Um, um, I will sleep on that horrendous couch at <laughs> six, seven months pregnant. And then I'll come back home and I'll be with Julian. And it was just the balancing act. And honestly, I don't remember a lot of it. Yeah. I don't remember a lot of it. I remember um, the care. Like the nurses will come and say, you know what, just if the, the, the bed next to him was empty, there was no kid staying at that time, they'll say, just sleep, we'll take care of them. And I'll take a nap in the hospital. They'll take him to the game room and they'll play with him. Or if he was sleeping, I'll just sleep. Like the nurses took care of myself, me too, which was amazing. That's so interesting that you remember the love and the care yeah. that you had instead of like the trauma maybe. Honestly, Eyal was such a good sport and he was such a happy kid and he's always been. He never Still complained. Is. He never, ever complained. That's um, unreal. Thankfully, he never had really... a like a lot of side effects like he wasn't dizzy or throwing up constantly like other children so each kid gets it differently he thankfully didn't get any of that so he will give me the tone of the day Hmm. 
Like, I'll behave the way he will wake up and, you know? Like, if I said it was going to be a good day, then I was okay. And it was a happy day for everyone. No matter what, like, he might be having this huge bag of chemo going through his veins, but he was happy and he was singing and he was like, so yeah. I will go special soul through his tone, you know? Mm-hmm. My, I, it's not that I gave him the strength. I always said that he gave me the strength. Unbelievable. I, I was nobody for him because he was the one who would keep me in the tone you know if you wow. if it was a bad day for him it was a bad day for me mm-hmm. if it was a good day then I could be you know I could be more relaxed and I know he's gonna be okay and I had he had always good a, a good income most of the time a good income I, I, you know I knew it was gonna be fine and I knew he's gonna be cured and we had amazing uh, doctors and nurses and so he gave me yeah the 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 he pat the rope for me of That's what to do. Unbelievable. What a special Nishama he is. He's, he's unbelievable. The fir- at, at the beginning, the first month was really hard. He couldn't walk. He gained a lot of weight because of the medication. So he basically had to start, he relearned how to walk. That was very hard for me. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see, I couldn't see because he was in pain. It was hurting him, but he, if he wouldn't try and get physical therapy, he could be limping for oh. life, you know, like, so they, they'll push him very hard in the physical therapy and I was pregnant and, that, for example, is when I will leave the room. Mm-hmm. I, couldn't, I couldn't see that, for example. That you couldn't see. That I couldn't see. But the rest, I never had a problem. You want to so stick a little, I'll, like, I'll, I'll hold him, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I'll be with him. But when he was trying to walk and he was in that pain, that I will, I will have to leave the room. I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't be here. That's so interesting. But that everything else... Different things trigger different people. Yeah, because I knew... Like, for example, when he was going to get an injection or he was going to go under to a procedure or whatever, I knew he was going to be fine. And I knew that it was... He was just scared. Mm-hmm. Because he was not in pain. He was just scared. Mm-hmm. Maybe he knew what was going to happen or maybe he didn't feel the pressure of... You know, he had a, a Mediport in his chest. So it's not that he had pain, but he feels pressure when he goes in. All these things. That I knew that he was not in pain. You understand? Like it makes a very big difference when you're walking and you see the, kid, you know, the kid's crying in pain. And he's double his size in two weeks. He was a yeah. ball, and he, you know, when they changed, that was painful for me. Yeah. Not the needles, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, I'm just taking this all in. This is like, it's a you, lot. You know, you're going through all of everything that you went through with your son, and it's just. To hear all of this, that every single thing you went through, you're just like, Admatai, like, enough. Enough is enough. And then you and your family, you experience this enormous trauma in your lives. And if that wasn't enough, about a year or so, right, after your son was diagnosed, you and your children received shocking and tragic news. The news shook the community. Um, I'm choking up a little bit, sorry. I didn't know you at the time and I was absolutely devastated. So can you share a little bit about how your late husband's passing completely changed your life around? So um, it was November 19, it was a Monday night. This is 13 months after Yal is diagnosed and six months after my daughter Alexandra is born. Um, I was home. My husband used to travel every week to different places for work. And that week he was in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, 
for a business trip and he had been there many times. It was not the first time that he was there. Everybody knew him, everybody knew about him and he would go maybe three, four times a year for the past 15, 20 years. Um, so they called me, they tell me that, um, that I shouldn't be alone, that everything is okay. But Who they called you? They, they called me from the hotel where he was staying, mm-hmm. the manager of the hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, asking me, first of all, they were asking, where is uh, Mr. Hakimian? I'm like, what do you mean? He's in Jamaica. No, 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 his father. I'm like, what do you mean his father? Who are you looking for? Mr. Hakimian. Why are you looking for his father? We need to talk to his father. I'm like, this is Mr. Hakimian's wife. No, 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 we need his father. So I try to explain, I know, but if you, who are you looking for? Long story short, uh, he was crossing a street right outside of the, the, the hotel and a car hit him. Um, we don't know much. We don't know exactly what happened. It's not like here that there are cameras everywhere, you know, they, it is, they, they don't really know much. They said, we don't know where he is. We just know they took him and we shouldn't be alone. And, and they, they, this poor guy didn't know what to do himself. Mm-hmm. So my first reaction was like, uh, he's told you all of this over the phone. Yeah. Just, <gasps> yeah, because he didn't know. I didn't, I didn't understand. I'm like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. So I called uh, my husband's boss. It was 10.30 at night. And I'm like, I'm very sorry to call you this hour. They just, I got a very strange phone call saying that, um, that Jacob had an accident. I don't even know if it's true. I can get a hold of him. Like he's not answering me. I don't know what's going on. Okay, let me, let me call people there. So he, he started calling uh, his clients, the owners of the stores that he goes to, people that he might know him. And they all went into a hunt to try to find him and to see which hospital he was going to be at. Or they, they didn't know themselves what to do. There's not that, that, that many hospitals. There's, you know, there's not that infrastructure here that you can call maybe 911 or you can call 311 or, you know. Oh, my God. So a few hours later, they called me. They said that they found him, uh, that he was in a hospital. I don't remember. I don't even know what city. I don't remember. Um that he was not doing so well, that he that he had a head injury. And then a few hours, like an hour later or so, they called me and said that he was in a coma, that they transferred to a different hospital because in that hospital they didn't have nothing, not mm-hmm. a CAT scan, not an X-ray. They had nothing, nothing. Out of all places, Jamaica. <laughs> so they sent him to a different hospital where I think he already came there with a, the coma. So they also couldn't do much so um the people that were very helpful the 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 um customers and all that they they were very helpful they one of a couple of them stayed with them all night they were in touch with me constantly and then from our side and his bosses they were also amazing they started to find ways to get him out of there because he can't stay there there's mm-hmm. no care for him and it was you know head injury if you don't treat it treat it within five minutes there's really not much you can do after that. So we found him a plane to get him out the next morning. And so the, the helicopter comes and has nothing to care for him. So we have to send another, they have to find something else. To, yeah, so hours and minutes we're going and, you know, we, we, we had really, I, I knew in my heart when they told me that, that he was not going to make it. Something told me that he's not going to, be okay and then they 
they another member of the community found I'm, I'm not sure how the story happened but I think he was the one who found an airplane from Miami going to Jamaica with doctors and nurses and equipment to treat this kind of injury mm-hmm. to fly him back to Jackson Memorial and and so they did they the next morning and then the next morning I traveled to Miami with um, a couple of Jake's first cousins and best friends we traveled together to Miami and my brother my two brother-in-laws went there my dad happened to be in, <clears throat> in Texas visiting his mother so he flew to Miami and I have first cousins in Miami they all met me there when I got there it was like 20 people waiting for, for mm-hmm. us already and he he had made it locally to um, to Miami alive, but we knew that it was not gonna. We just needed him to get out of there okay, yeah. alive because otherwise they would not give enough to the, the body for a long time, uh-huh. and you know they'll make um, all these things right. that we don't want them to be done. Right. So, <clears throat> so they brought him back the next uh, on Tuesday, and uh, on Wednesday he passed away. There was not much we could have done or do, and he passed away on Wednesday. So I came back on Wednesday night. No, yeah, Wednesday night, and we it was Thanksgiving weekend, and we buried him on Friday, the twenty first. Wow. So that you know. Everything that you went through changed your entire life around. How are you standing here today with strength? What keeps you going? And how are you just... My kids. My kids, my family, my in-laws. That's it. I do everything for them. I will do anything for them. I will mm-hmm. do it all over again if necessary. Would you say they give you strength on a day-to-day basis? They're what keep you going? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also, Jake's memory. I want him to see us okay. Because I'm sure that he's not going to want us to be, you know... Miserable. Miserable or... and, and, you know, in the pity road. I don't like that at all. I, I teach my kids to always be, you know, strong and... No matter what comes to you, you have to deal with it, and everything happens for a reason. Did you allow yourself and your children to grieve? My children, yes, absolutely. I'm, we're very open about everything. We speak very openly about mm-hmm. cancer and illness and, and loss, and you know, if they want to go to the cemetery, we go, and if they don't want to go, we don't go, and we celebrate his life when it's his birthday. And I That's tell wonderful. Him, I tell him, well, you know, today should have been my wedding anniversary. That that happened a couple of weeks ago. It should have been 15 years of anniversary. And I let them grieve the whatever way they want to grieve. Like if they want a picture, they get a picture. If they don't want it, it's fine. Um, Did you allow yourself to grieve? I didn't have time. I didn't have time because I had a six-month-old baby and a child with cancer. <laughs> and... I didn't have time because, you know, it's survival mode, and I have grieving. Yeah, I mean, I do it in my own on my own time mm-hmm. in my own the privacy of my bedroom, basically, yeah. or my car. You know, the the first few months 
you will go into my car and probably have the worst energy because that's where I'll be all the time crying and, and being miserable. But I will, when I will get home... You also lived in a place where it was full of other people. Like you lived in an apartment building. Uh, but I moved a couple months after. Oh, wow. Yeah, I moved. We were in process you were... Of, of moving. Uh, for, like he, We were supposed to close on a house that Monday after he passed. So my apartment was already sold. My apartment was half up uh, oh, yeah. packed. Um, so the, the owners, the previous owners of the house were very nice. They waited for me for a few months until I could put myself together. And then I went ahead and, and, and bought the house and on your own. Yeah. Yeah. You just kept going. Yeah. I, something that really works and still till today works for me very well is if I feel that I want to cry or I want to mourn or I'm sad or whatever, I give myself the time. And the space. The space, but I literally put a timer to it. I'm like, I have 10 minutes because in 10 minutes I have an appointment. Mm -hmm. So I have 10 minutes to be miserable, but then I have to put a smile. So Mm -hmm. take it or leave it. Like you can't go in there with a face that you're like being crying for three hours. So you have 10 minutes. Where do you get your strength from? (laughs) Were you always like this? Yeah. But since you're a little girl. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Would you say I, your parents are like this? Um, I didn't have it very easily also growing up. Mm-hmm. My parents got divorced when I was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, we're always fighting for what we wanted. We were taught that nothing comes free in life. And, you know, you, 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 gotta work you for get it. what you get. You know, you get what you want to get. And I always have to, you know, as I say, scratch with my own nails. And I don't mm-hmm. expect people to do things for me. Like, if you want to help me, fine, great. But I'm not expecting you to do anything for me. And if I want something done, I, I have to do it because nobody else is going to do anything for me. Not in a bad way, obviously, but I can't expect people to make me feel better, which I'm the one who has the tools and, and the reasons and, and the background and everything to make myself feel better. Okay, I feel, I feel bad. Why? Because I don't look good. Okay, so go on a diet, go to the gym or do something that is going to make you feel better or go to therapy or, mm-hmm. you know, I go to therapy since then once a week religiously and still today oh yeah wonderful i my kids too if they need huge they come and go. for me it's a very important part of my life is my therapy thank you for sharing that i, I with us i've done it since even when i was younger when my parents got divorced we mm-hmm. go to therapy even in my teenager years when i you know didn't know what i wanted to do and i felt that you know that i needed it i um, we always been very open about it that's and amazing i've always tried to stay away from for example antidepressants but that's me yeah. I'm not against them mm-hmm. at all. I just always try to go do it on your own. Do it on my own. Yeah. Without relying on exactly. any person or anything or right. substance. Exactly. Interesting. And so far, that has worked for me. And I started uh, going to the gym because of that. Because mm-hmm. I thought that that would be... I mean, I always liked it. You just it. came from the gym right now. Yes, so. exactly. <laughs> so I always done it. and But I that really saved me after after my husband passed. Because... So the gym, therapy, and just keep going, just, using your Just own. the desire of my kids to have an emotionally healthy life. Because it will be very easy for me to say, oh, I come from a broken home and a dysfunctional family. Mm. It, Victim. It will uh, be very easy for me just to follow the same patterns. Yeah. But I don't want that. I, my mom, for example, lost her father when she was also very young. And the stories that she tells me about her mother dealing with the loss has taught me what I don't want to do with my kids, with their loss. Mm. 
I mean, she was a slightly older. She was like maybe 14, 15. My kids were five, three, and six months, which is completely different. But the stories that she tell me about her mother, the way she mourned her father, and the way she treated the children after these Well, like they were like nebuchs or yes. like pity. And... Yes, and they were dressed in black for a year, and they would go every Sunday to the cemetery, and they weren't allowed to go to the movie theater. This, these things that it might apply for an adult, for a younger adult might not, or for a child might not, I try to let my kids live as kids and children they understand what it means to lose a father yeah. they talk about it their mm-hmm. friends ask about it people you know they are able to say oh my my dad passed away like they they can say that without the embarrassment there's nothing to be embarrassed yeah. but you can yeah. feel embarrassed without shame the or shame exactly sad. yeah exactly I mean, of course they're sad yeah and, you know when all these like the holidays come or birthday parties, my daughter. Of course. My daughter never met her father. She was six months old. She has no memory of him whatsoever. And she goes to a friend's house or a birthday party and they see the dads mm-hmm. and they see everybody. She comes, she says, you know, I wish I had my dad. I yeah. miss my daddy. And she has a picture with herself when she, the day she was born in, in her nightstand. When they ask for a picture of like the dad. Right? Yeah. My older ones, for example, they, they, they don't want a picture. They have it in their drawers in their nightstand, it's but they don't have it. Yes. They don't have it displayed which I respect completely. I never would push, push them to do anything that yeah. they are not comfortable with. So I just try to give them the space and try for them not to have these taboos of, you know, passing and because I'm a single mom and I mm-hmm. don't have a, you know, have their dad and I don't want them to feel that, you know, that they should be treated in a special way because of that. Also with the guy when he was sick in school, they'll give him special treatment. And I'm like, listen, he doesn't get special treatment in my house. He should not be getting special treatment in school. He how, should be like, treated. how would they treat him more special? They'll feel bad for him, so they will, like, let him go out of the class to the nurses more often to a point that he fell back on reading because, mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, I feel so bad for him. Let me just send him to the, to the nurse. Or he will get an extra candy that everybody gets one candy, but he gets two candies because, oh, they feel bad for him. You aren't having that. I No, no, I don't like that at all. And my house is always being the same. Even when he was sick, it's like, you know what? No, but I'm sick. It's okay, but you're still a child, and you, you, your siblings have the same right to have the exact same amount of candy as you. These kind of things don't roll very well with me, and I don't like to get that favorite, you know, a favoritism. Because you feel, do you feel like it exacerbates the victimhood? Yeah, like when someone when he got sick, people with the best of intentions, they, you know, they start pouring down with toys. And I live in a twelve hundred square feet apartment, <laughs> two bedroom that I did not have room for toys. You know, people trying to make him feel happy or whatever, they started bringing toys and toys. I said, go to a point where I don't want them. I just, please stop. Mm-hmm. No, but I want them to make them feel better. But yeah, but this is like a Band-Aid. You know, you're just putting a Band-Aid and when you rip it off, it's going to be much worse. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't need the, the toys because he has plenty, thankfully. Yeah. Doesn't need anything. And second of all, this is just creating, you know. Maybe more entitlement or. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I never liked that. You didn't that. want that. Yeah, no, no. I never, I never treated them like that. That guilt trip and the pity trip, it has never been right. okay with me. Even when people come and tell you, oh, I feel so bad for you. I'm like, no, don't feel bad for me. Like, really? We'll, we'll be fine. You know? That also gives me the strength of being, I just don't want to be like that. I don't want to be. They never treated like, me. yeah. Yeah, they're like, oh, poor you, poor you. I want to so, you know what? I'm going to. I'm going to go through this. I'm going to take my kids out of this hole and, and we're going to be fine. And if I need help, I ask for help. 
I learned not to be embarrassed to ask for help. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. No, right? no, I learned that. It's not a sign of weakness. At all. Actually, it's... it's Shows you're strong. Yeah, because I really can't do with this anymore. Yeah. I need some help or... Um, you're not being a martyr. You're, exactly. you're a strong woman, and when you need help, you ask exactly. for it. Exactly, and, and I try to be for my kids... As obviously as much as I can and I hopefully I'm doing a good job you are you're doing an amazing job and um, I just really always want I, my goal is that they have an emotionally healthy life and they could be Amen. you know good citizens and, and Jews and pass down you know good values and uh, you know make something productive out of themselves go to college have a career get a job and just be successful in whatever field they want to be they want to be doctors and lawyers they'll be better but whatever field they want to <laughs> but be whatever they're you know? passionate about yes and whatever and I always tell them whatever you do you have to do it good mm-hmm. don't do halfway that's never gonna take you anywhere it's just being mediocre whatever you want to do like you want to be a firefighter fine but you're gonna be the best firefighter wow you know like I don't care what you do but you're gonna be the best of it mm-hmm. and it's not always easy and you know yeah it's of not course always, you know it's, it's a challenge but I really hope that they will get to be the best version of themselves that they can be. Amen. God willing. So, Anel, you told you told us that what gives you strength on a day-to-day basis is your family, your friends, support system, therapy, and, you know, relying on your own resources. And can you tell us what you started? Um, I would say maybe a year or two after... The tragedy yeah, yeah. and how not that even. a few months. Not, a few months. Yeah. Yeah. No, so it can was you, a year. It was a year. It was a year, right? It was a year. So you're you're telling us about how you want your children to be the best at whatever they're passionate about. Tell us what you started that you are passionate about and how you came about that. Well, after a year the, of uh, Jacob's passing, um, I started a business doing birthday cakes. Um, I always like, I mean, I'm, I'm an architect and interior designer. I always like to work with my hands and I'm very, um, always being very, um, crafty and, um, you know, creative. Opposite I love color. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so when my kids were little, I always wanted to get nice cakes for my kids' birthdays because my kids love to spend their, their birthdays with their cousins and Shabbat dinner. And it was impossible to get a nice par of cool cake. Like sometimes I'll get it from this lady, but she didn't know she couldn't get what I wanted, and mm. it was just always like a dread for me. And I I don't make like huge birthday parties every year, but their Shabbat dinner cake it was always my priority. And I'll decorate the table, you know, make it special. So I started making it myself. I said, you know what, I can do better. Mm. I know I can do it. So I tried. Um, I learned this technique that was back then nobody knew about it. It's called fondant <laughs> and you know, I couldn't find it kosher. So I made it myself and I burned my hands many times and I spent a lot of money and threw it in the garbage because it wouldn't come out decent. Um, but it worked. You and didn't give up. I didn't give up going. because I wanted my kids to have a nice birthday cake and it had to be part. <laughs> so <laughs> I started using Duncan Hines you know, basic cake for uh-huh. uh, my kids. And I started decorating it, cutting into shapes, made, made a Mickey Mouse head for Yael's first birthday. That was my first fondant yeah. cake. Um, and and then it really, I really enjoyed doing it. So after Jacob passed, I said, you know what? I need a job that I can be home with my kids. I don't mm. want to go into an office, right. work nine to five. Alex, 
is nearly one at that point or maybe a little over one and I just didn't want to leave my kids and go to work but I need I wanted to have a job and I needed to have a job so one of my friends put in one of our chats that she wanted to have she wanted to buy a, a spider-man cake for her son chase and where can she find oh, I one? heard the story so I side texted her I'm like Sheena I can do it for you I have just done one for my son Julian um, just as a parenthesis, the day after we came out of Shiva from Jacob, this was on a Thursday. That Friday was Julian's sixth birthday, the next day. So oh my gosh. I said I have to make him his cake because he's been dreaming about this Spider-Man cake. So that night on Shabbat, the first Shabbat that Jacob wasn't home with us, I made this cake for Julian and we celebrated his birthday that night. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Lots of mixed emotions. It was it was very hard. hard. You could cut the tension with scissors in that house that oh night. It was my. really, 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 really difficult. And it was only you and your children? No, night. no, no. Oh, we were at my in-laws' house. Oh Everybody my. was there. Everybody was very supportive. But it was so uh, hard. It was very hard, yeah. But I did his cake. So a year later, this happens with the opportunity. So I side text my friend. I'm like, listen, I can make this cake and I show her a picture of that Spider-Man cake that I've just made for Julian the last year and she's like are you sure I'm like yes I want to do it okay do it for me so I did it this, this was probably around November exactly a year after November mm -hmm. December and it passed like whatever I did it vacation came you know uh, holiday um, winter vacation all that and around like January another one of my very good friends uh, that she has a few kids she texts me it's like uh, my kids birthdays are coming up you want a cake would you make a cake for my kids I'm like this is it <sighs> like this is my chance I'm like yeah sure of course I'll do it so uh, I think I made like four cakes for her back to back because all her kids are back to back and like maybe mm -hmm. one, a week or two in between and from then I started giving a couple of cakes away to people just you know for um, promotion and promotion I started I opened my Instagram account and from then within six months I'll say I was making 10 to 12 cakes a week I could not I was working um, I was working 10 15 hours a day and I started my business that now it's been for most one thing lets another, Six and now, years. thank God. Yeah, over a thousand cakes now. And now bakes. And now bakes. And your business should have lots of Hatzlacha and you. success and everything good. It should bring you to many great places. So can you tell us what's the most important value that you live by? Honesty. Honesty. That's so interesting. Tamar Betzalali, the last mm -hmm. guest, said the same thing. Honesty. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'm way too honest, and it has also brought me good <laughs> <laughs> And you would yeah. say this is the value you pass on to your children as well? I try to, yeah. And what are some of your hopes and dreams for the world? Peace and acceptance and, um, I don't know, just be nice to, to one another. Being you know, kind to one another. Yeah, just accept each other the way we are and just love each other and tolerate, you know. Wow. The... Beautiful. Amen to that. Amen. Uh, and now, where can people find you? 
Um, well, my Instagram account is Anel Bakes. She's amazing, guys. <laughs> Anel Bakes, um, or my email, anelbakes at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm here for all your bakes. Needs. Are you on Facebook as well? Uh, yes, my personal account, Anel Hakimian Warman. Okay. That's my Facebook. Sure. Anel, thank you so much thank for you. this powerful interview, touching interview. Um, I have no words. I'm just, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> this is was so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the space to share this. And hopefully people will, you know, feel connected. Or, oh, they will. You know. I was very connected. help in any way. God willing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.